felt really good after our last practice uh, where we just went over the audience uh, interaction part of the opening. Uh, I had something specific I wanted for how to introduce ourselves and the show. And I had been having trouble uh, conveying that. So I went and I found this recording of a show that was my inspiration for what I was looking for. And I just played it for them. It's Ben Schwartz introducing a show where he uh, sets up that we're looking for the biggest lie you've ever told. So start thinking of that now. And now here's a bit about our show, da da da. And then people have had a chance to think about it uh, is what I wanted because our input is going to be a song lyric or a line of poetry. So something that people have to like dig into their minds for and we sort of want the second thing that people think of. Yeah, that cat can be um that can be a tricky little thing sometimes. So what how many people are you going to land up with how many people are you gonna land up performing this first time? Nine. All okay. but one came yesterday and we had have done two complete sets with no interference on my part. And that one person has was there the week before where we also did a practice set. Okay. Uh, how's that going with the, um, with the attendance? Cause I know you also wanted to like review your bylaws and now that you're like coming down to crunch time, how's all that going? Yeah. What happened is I had a bunch of perform of practices with these 80 to 90% attendance rates that went well and there was overlap and people that had been regularly missing came to me to say, Hey, I know I haven't been around. I'll come to see the show. And then we're going to have those two practices between shows to bring those people back in. And also some new faces will come in and also help our diversity representation. And yeah, the bylaws that we have that I didn't feel the need to change are that you have to make one of the two practices immediately preceding a performance. The people who are going to be joining the team, did they come to you or did you seek out other people? They have been uh, suggested before and uh, I've already talked to them like a month ago and they just knew they didn't have the availability. Okay, for this time around. All yeah. right. Um, thoughts on folding them into something that's already been established? Have you Have you thought about how that's going to go? I've been very focused on getting this first show through, so I definitely feel like I'm underprepared on how to bring them in. I'd like them to participate. I'd also like to introduce new concepts so that the second show is different from the first. And so it's going to be a balancing act, and that's something that I uh, haven't been performing so well in is when I come in expecting to work on one skill and either the team has already mastered it so then uh, there's no point beating a dead horse or there's some other skill that's detrimental and I have to pivot and it's been uh, a real struggle to 
improv the coaching because I will recognize that something needs to change and then I'll uh, equivocate a bit. Do you not, how do, do you see yourself as like, no, I am the one making this call at this time or do you still see yourself more as like, so when I'm a coach or a teacher, like I'm here to facilitate your voice and hear your opinions and whatnot. But when I've got a show to put up and I have in my mind artistically how it goes, I own the title of artistic director, so this is the opening you're doing. There's no conversation about it. Does that make sense? Yeah, and I I see that difference, and I haven't fully taken the reins as director, even though I am in title and in function that. Right, because, I mean, there's, there's – I think it's a – I think there's a lot you're balancing right now. So I can tell you the first time I said, uh, as an artistic director, this is the opening we're doing. And someone was like, oh, but it's not as fun. I'm like, but I'm the artistic director and this is what we're doing. And then it was no longer the conversation wasn't had. We all did it, whatever. But I was like, oh, I feel like shit because I'm not yes anding and I'm not helping create this moment and da-da-da-da-da. And it doesn't – but what – what needed to happen, though, was just what you said, is that confusion needed to be stopped. There needed to be a sort of a buck stops here kind of person. And in that moment, that's what needed to happen. Um, and that also means that if the that show goes to shit, it falls on my shoulders, too. Right. So there's risk in it. But I like to think of it as this. I like to be like, but it's just it's. If I don't take a risk as a director, then how can I tell improvisers to take a risk? Because I've got to be willing to fail as a director, right? And then when I – yeah. And then when I fail as a director, I can come back and be like, all right, I fucked that up. Yeah. Yeah, the other reason I think for my hesitation to take that stronger stance is that some of the people have put a lot of – work into organizing and logistics and I do feel like I owe it to them to let their creative vision be a part of it and uh, not to make it so that they've put all this work to think that we're doing a certain type of show. I've, I've been on the other side of this. My very first team that emerged out of a class, uh, we brought in someone as a first-time coach and we all loved each other as performers and we're still friends, but we realized that we were just not respecting him. Thankfully, we had the awareness to just say, in this case, it's not going to work out. Right. Whereas this was a call out for players, right? That, and, they, and they knew up front, this is the hierarchy, this is what we're working toward, et cetera, et cetera, which can also be a little bit different yeah I mean because we have some coaches who coach teams and some of our players were there before these coaches were even in our program yeah yep yep and again I didn't pick them to be coaches because of seniority right like it has to do with there's so many as you know there's so many things that go into what makes a coach what makes a director that kind of thing the other thing we had talked about was like you giving hard notes and then you came to the conclusion that you can essentially give the same note and you don't have to come up with like the most magnificent note for everybody. <laughs> right. So how's that going? It's really helped uh, having Craig's or renewed 
experience of Craig's perspective to know what the main top headline points are and to have all the notes derived from that so that my notes are more reminders of things I've already said rather than always something new uh, that I feel like I'm coming from a consistent viewpoint. And like you're saying, we were saying earlier about being the artistic director is that my notes are coming from a desire to achieve a specific vision rather than a vague grab bag of good improv tips. Let me throw them at you one at a time. Right. Cause you're not working on the individual right now. You're working on the collective. Yeah. And the piece. So it's a, it's a different, I feel like it's a different approach. What I'm still failing at is being systematic in my uh, distribution of individual notes. I, haven't reached out to everyone because there were some people that I hadn't seen since going to see Craig and then I ran out of time. There were uh, some people that I didn't really follow up with in that regard and they, I'm sure they feel left out. And then while I'm watching things, I'm trying to observe so many things, write so many things down. I got feedback recently that they don't feel like I'm actually watching them because I'm spending so much time taking notes what are you trying to gain while you're watching a scene? Like, what it, are you? What are you trying? What is your objective when watching a scene? My objective is to notice who is making what choices, and to see if I can connect that into some larger thing, or to find the patterns. And whenever I am not laughing, or I'm cringing, or see that there's confusion on stage, I want to notice those things first and try to point them to the principle that's being violated. So are you trying to write notes so that, so that you don't have to interrupt the piece and then you can come back to the piece afterwards and be like, in this moment here? Yeah. yeah. So you're trying to collect a ton of information. And we're doing a 45-minute, 50-minute show, so that's a lot of things right. to remember. Do you think it's realistic that you could get, grasp it all? I'm able to grasp a lot of things, but it's the trade-off between putting it all in my head and giving notes on that or uh, potentially not seeing things and missing those notes. Either way, I'm going to miss something. Anybody is always going to miss something, right? Because there's just no way we can watch, especially if you've got like nine people on stage at the same time. You're, you're, there's something, right? So I, I specifically remember like watching my teachers take notes. Like I was like, what is their code, right? A lot, some people have developed some sort of like shorthand for themselves. And I think I have yet to do that. I, I have tried to like narrow down some things and or try to leave myself like code words or, you know, trigger words of like, and I find what helps with that is that um, if I'm specifically looking for something in a scene and I write that word down, to me, that means that was missing. And then I'm like, ah, okay. And then we, and then usually the students are so good or the players are so good about like, oh, right, well, I did this move that it makes me come back to that moment also. Um, you know, I, so, so when you, when they said that to you, what, what was your response? That was uh, a difficult moment because it was after practice, we, a subset of us had gone out to dinner and then ice cream and then I brought the show back up. Or, you know, I said about, yeah, you know, that last set really was good. I would feel fine with it in front of an audience and the other person agreed and then they said by the way I think you should 
put out an anonymous survey for people to give you feedback. And I had a very strong, negative, panicky reaction because I didn't know where this was coming from. Is this a uh, specific thing that you want to tell me anonymously that was prompted by me thinking the show was good? Are other people talking amongst themselves and I don't know about it? Uh, what is this? And I, so I said, you know, I, I let the conversation go by and then I just stopped it to go back and say, what did you mean by that? And then got a list of things, including this, that they didn't feel I was watching the show much. Even anonymous surveys in the beginning are hard to read about yourself. There's it, As much as we try to be super aware of ego and of defensiveness and whatnot, we still all have it, right? Especially on something personal, like you're essentially creating this team and and producing the show and putting lots and lots of work into it right so it's a super personal thing to you so it, it's not going to be easy the first time out anyways an anonymous survey is not a bad idea after your first show just to check in like that's not a bad idea i was thinking just now that like yeah i'm very self-conscious about how i'm giving feedback and i'm seeking advice for it and checking against people but uh, they as performers are thinking in terms of performance. They're not potentially not aware that their giving feedback is exactly the same mechanism as me giving feedback and that we're less asymmetric in that sense. Especially because you're building a relationship and a repertoire with these, with these people. So even if they're not like your friends, they're still important to you right in the show so it's never easy to to give this direct feedback that we have to give to people so yeah i mean you're having a lot of growth this is a huge growing part of what you're going through yeah i mean there's there's that level that i don't know if i'll be able to uh when the moment comes uh deliver a note in its harshest form or or even you know in any sort of harsh way because has been behavior that I uh, have seen other improv coaches that will stop and say, no, never. But the philosophy of the JTS Brown is that anything that happens when it's meant to happen. So I feel like if I were to contradict behavior, that would violate the philosophy. Do we have to be super harsh? And I think we can be direct without being nasty. Yeah, and I think it's worth exploring that first. Give the note in a soft way by putting it in terms of, oh, this is something that'll make it hard for you or something that uh, can lead to negative scenes. Uh, and then if it persists, you know, the same as if we were to like resort to violence and self-defense, you only do it after exhausting all other options. It's hard because sometimes there's like the student or the player who is consistently giving you all the reasons why the move they made was justified, right? And that, and so in that moment, you want to be like, you're being so selfish right now. But being nasty about it in that sense, like instead of being more like Socratic about it, I feel like, if you know, like, so do you think that's a helpful way to play? Versus, you know what I mean? Like, so that way they can, because if we just give them, the answer, then how do they discover it themselves? Right, and that's been my experience so far is when I say, oh, you came in to start this one scene uh, as a callback, but 
your movements weren't clear or you didn't say anything until you already got upstage and so people were making assumptions, uh, then they tend to say, oh, yeah, here's what was going through my head. It was pretty close to what I was guessing. And then I'm, from there I point out how it was vague or unhelpful. Right. How do I climb into your mind and see what you're trying to do? Yeah. Right? So you, you can only emote what you think you're putting out into the universe, but then the reality is my scene partner is going to filter that through their lens and their experiences and in their interpretation. And then when they say what that is, that becomes a reality. So either I have to get better at emoting it what I want if it's a type of form where I can say what I want, then I better say what I want, right? Or I have to really learn on accept, being accepting of the fact that no one on the stage is a mind reader. Haven't discovered that power in improv yet. And I think there's some merit sometimes when teams talk about like, well, this is what I was thinking here so we can get into the mindset of how, our, how we all think. Like, I think that can be helpful if we're trying to work on building like, oh, I... I have an understanding of Kevin when he comes out because he has a tendency to think linear, you know? Um, so that can be helpful, but it, but up to a point, right? Like sometimes I'll throw things out and be like, here's what I was thinking. I don't want you to, I'm not telling you that because I wanted you to change the scene. I just want you to know how I think in those situations. And then, I, and then ideally that person's like, Oh, well I think this way. Cool. The next time we do a scene, I'll make sure I'm more direct or I'll make sure I'm listening harder that's that's the reason why I have those conversations, right? What I'm going to try to do next week, because there's going to be new people coming in, is push myself to just be in the moment and stop scenes as soon as something happens that's off so that uh, these people that are just hearing it for the first time uh, and are less able to put it all in their heads in one point uh, don't have to have that negative feeling of, being allowed to go ahead and then being told, oh, yeah, you know, 10 minutes ago when you made that one choice, that's what where you should have done X, Y, Z. I think that's also a balancing act. But if the format allows for you to stop a scene or throw out a word, like if you guys build a working vocabulary together. So I specifically do an exercise called show me where I set it up for my students. And essentially, when I say show me, they have to do. They have to, when they make a statement, they have to physically in their environment show it to me like five mm-hmm. different ways sort of thing. I set it up that way. Once they've run that exercise, now they have the vocabulary of show me so that when I'm sitting on the side and I don't want to stop a scene, but I want something of them, I just yell out show me. And we all have that working lexicon. So this is if they're in a figure, uh, you know, 11 and they're not acting out. Physically, you could say, show me to get them to do more physical moves. Exactly. Right. Yeah. And then that way, I don't have to stop the scene per se, right? Yeah. But I also can get what we need to make sure that that's successful and to the next le- to the next place. So that might also be helpful. Yeah, but if you're in a place where you can stop a scene and just do a quick a quick change and then let it go – you know, that's what they need. And ideally at some point, though, I'm sure, and you guys are probably doing this, you want them to be able to run top to bottom so they feel the whole 
what the whole experience is. Yeah, and they've definitely gotten that this week. And even the first set started out on a shaky initiation uh, into a few very fast-paced scenes that I uh, wanted to give them the experience of recovering from, which they did. Uh, But at the rate that they were going in the beginning, they would have done 45 shows in 45 minutes, 45 sets scenes in those 45 minutes which just isn't sustainable uh and right which leads me to the other thing that i'm uh having problems with is a um just awareness of the group as i'm explaining things or looking at things like i'm focused on conveying the information and if people are crossing their arms or talking to a friend or just not engaged I'm also not engaged enough to be able to call them out on it because I'm thinking so hard about what I'm saying. Are you missing it or are you seeing it? I'm missing nonverbal things. And if other people are talking, I don't have the tools to say, or maybe it's, I don't know what I'm missing to get them to lock in. There's this interesting thing that they do over at Cold Town uh, with the hands crossing is uh, when I, I took the intensive over there in January or right before, right before the new year, every teacher, when we would start class, the moment the first person would do this, they would say, all right, this is a great time for me to say no hands in pockets, no crossing arms. And, and only because that closes you down to uh, receiving information. Also, a lot of times people have habits of just like, oh, I'm just ending and listening, right? Like, that might be like a really simple like, hey, when I'm giving notes, I want everybody just to have their hands at their sides and be listening. And then I'll just say, you know, cross, like just if someone crosses their arm so I don't have to stop my train of thought. I don't know. It's an idea. The other thing with the people talking, you know, you can do the old school of like just stop talking until everybody shuts up kind of thing, right? Um, I, yep. I know that Paul likes to shush people because he's like, adults don't want to be shushed. So the first time I shush them, they stop. <laughs> I haven't taken on the shushing. It doesn't fit me personally. The shush. Um, but I have like, I have a rowdy level one, a couple of them who like love to chit chat after scenes. And the first time I kind of just let it go just to see if like, okay, sometimes you ignore behavior, it goes away. Right. Um, but it wasn't going away and it was interfering with me trying to think about the note I need to give to the person who is on stage. So I finally turned and I was like, you guys are taking away stage time from this person when you just had all the stage time. It's not fair. Please stop. So basically it all comes down to don't be afraid to stop yourself and address it in different ways. But I think in the long run, you will be better off getting that behavior out of the way because it'll become really hard for you to focus on your notes because I get a little heady too when I see people with like closed off body language or kind of not paying attention. I'm like, oh my God, am I that boring? And then I have to stop myself and be like, that's a big ego. Maybe they've had a shit drive. <laughs> but it does. It puts you to a mindset of like, ooh, am I boring people? Am I not getting to my point? Have I said this already? So it's just helpful if you have sort of as clean as a palette as you can have of people paying attention to you. And 
example is how much I just talked about this. So I know I get wordy. <laughs> the other thing that happened is right before the first set, I circled us all up, had everyone uh, say a thing that uh, we should as a group focus on for the set rather than me saying my things. And they did hit all the things that I had been saying over the last couple of weeks. And then we went over, I said, okay, go over and set up for the show. Someone had a question about someone that wasn't there. And then that spun up a whole bunch of different side conversations right after I just gotten everyone focused. And I tried to just like shut down and be like, that's not important. And someone said, no, it is important. And I feel like I should have, like, really just, you know, stopped everything and reset them again because I felt like we had lost focus and that it was a dangerous move to let the set continue. Yeah. I don't think you want to shut them down. I mean, yeah, I get it. In the moment, you're like, okay, guys, we just had an opportunity. Can we just go play? Let's go play. Let's go play. So I think there's nothing wrong with, A, being like, clearly we're not ready to get in there yet, so let's circle back up and refocus. The other thing is when a question comes toward you and you're like, oh, we just did that. Be like, this is a great question. Let's, let's put a pin in it and we'll come back to it after the set. Maybe you'll get answered during the set. Right. Uh, that way, yeah. um, you're quite, cause if you answer one person's question, like you said, all of a sudden, oh, the door is open. Boom, 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 boom. Right. But if we just pin it, mm-hmm. let's move on. And then, and then maybe it didn't. Um, because also you don't want, like you said, like you don't want to shut down people's ideas and you want them to ask their questions. It's just a matter of the timing and because people will talk. We have a freaking podcast where we, all we do is talk about improv, right? Like people like, yeah. And we're one of dozens. (laughs) So people clearly like to talk about it, but you don't. Which is helpful, but it's the doing we know that's the real that's where the big big leaps come from, right? So yeah, it's it's just that's just like your your team management of like great question, let's pin it. Um and or we need to refocus. Let's get let's get back in the circle. Mm-hmm. Uh Bill Binder does this thing at and he does it at the end of class, but where people get like an invisible bell or a conch shell, if you will. And it's essentially a talking stick and they can go as long as they need to go without anyone interrupting. That'll be good if people feel like their voices aren't being heard or they don't feel like they can voice something because it's too irrelevant or not wanted. It's also really great practice for the people who, for whatever reason, have to either agree with something that's being said all the time or like give their commentary on it. Right. Because if the whole thing is you can't talk and someone does that, there's rules in place. You know, you can just give them, I just, to the listener out there, put my finger on my lips, which is a great training tool for them to shut up then because they're not listening. Right? Like, so it's a whole, it's, yeah. a, it's an improv exercise in of itself, I guess. That's all great, but this is all great stuff you're running into because this is all this is nothing out of the norm, right? And it's it's just learning to deal with it and what your style is on how you deal with it. Right. 
Yeah. So Craig is a really big influence on you. When you look at his style of teaching, though, is that something that beyond modeling, do you think you could pull that off? When I watch Paul, I can't pull off being a 6'5 big guy. Yeah, and I can't pull off yeah, delivering the note with gravitas or the authority of having done this for years and years. Yeah, well, that's the other piece that none of us <laughs> are at yet. Right. So I would like to go and now take more classes and workshops from people that are more at my level, but slightly ahead, uh, so that I can see how, like you're saying, like if they're in a different position or physically different from you, you can't only model so much of their behavior. And uh, there are still things that Craig does that I try to do more of. He gets up there and shows what he wants to supplement the talking about it, even when he fails at it because it's one thing to say it and one thing to do it. Uh, there was a yeah, great moment when he went to like, oh, I'll, I'll be your character, goes up and immediately freezes. <laughs> and the whole class said, yeah, it's not that easy, is it? And so I should really be pushing myself to do that too. If After this team, whatever team comes next, you already have a million years of experience now. Like just by doing this alone, boom, here you are. Um, even like, even let's say, and it's been going longer than this, but let's say you only did this for six weeks. That's still six weeks more than anyone else. And these players may have been playing longer, but they haven't been directing a team, specifically a JTS team. So you already are the authority in the room. You'll wear that more and more as you get going with this more and more. Like you'll have more confidence with it. Yeah, it seems like it's all been about balancing the ego to feed it enough to where I can take authority and then be able to squash it when legitimate criticism or I won't I want to say that some criticism is illegitimate, but when uh founded criticism, even if it's poorly delivered, comes. Uh, right. And and there are gonna be times when someone's going to give you criticism or feedback and it will be bullshit because you're like I don't I don't know if you got to listen to Jose's podcast yet but um he got he got because I like to ask long-term teachers like what's like the most surprising thing you've gotten on a survey and he was saying that like a student wrote in how the teacher never explained never gave feedback and never talked about improv well anyone who knows Jose who were you in the room with? <laughs> well, how can any improv class function without those three happening? I don't, I don't know. At least one of the three. Right. So, <laughs> so sometimes you have to be like, okay, there's that outlier. Yeah. But, yeah, for the most part. Um, but in this case, there was a selection process in terms of who came in. So I think it's going to be less likely that I find that sort of way off the wall. Absolutely, absolutely, and then it and then it does become that act of like, ooh, that hurt a little bit, but now I have to think about it, um, and it does. Jill Bernard brought up that her constant feedback is 
too much talking and not enough doing and wondered how can you teach anything without talking about it? Right. And that's, I mean, I got that too a couple times of like overall really loved it. There were a couple of classes where there was too much talking and I'm thinking to myself, right, because there, I know which weeks you're talking about because that's when I'm introducing completely brand new concepts you have never heard before and we have to go through them and learn them. Right? Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, but I have to also think, okay, that person felt there was too much talking. Is there a way I can streamline it a little more? I think what they really mean is too much irrelevant talking because in their mind it didn't fulfill the stated objective or their idea of the objective. Right. Right. If they're not aware, if they're not in their heads thinking, hey, this is a lot of talking, you could probably talk for the entire two-hour class and not get that note. Yeah, I agree. I agree. So um, what else – is there anything else we talked about last time that we need to revisit? I think we had brought up that uh, I haven't gotten feedback from other coaches, and that's still something that uh, I feel like is missing that no one with coaching experience – that is not on the team has seen me do my thing to provide notes. Yeah. And because you're not doing, um, essentially because you're coaching an indie team, you didn't have the benefit of like a train the trainer program or anything like that. So, but the fact that you want to do it is a huge self-awareness step kind of thing. Anything else we should discuss? How do you think this has gone for you in terms of, like, checking in and talking through it? I think this has been very valuable since I'm a deadline and deliverable-driven person. So if I need to collect my thoughts before an interview, I'm much more likely to do it than if it's just a, I should collect my thoughts so that I can be marginally better for the next practice. What advice now do you have to people who are maybe their first time out with this? It's still worthwhile to jump in and ideally you would have your expectations set from the beginning and have certain things that you say at the top of every class or coaching session, but it's all correctable. Cool. All right. We will... um We'll wrap up here for this.